0: We've been doing uh, a series on Hebrews, and we're at a key verse in uh, chapter 11. I'm going to do something unusual today. I'm just going to focus on this verse and on a particular word, because I think it is so central. But it's uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And I'm going to give you three different readings of it to give you an idea of the three alternative understandings. And it concerns faith. And the question is, and even the way I pose the question isn't exactly right, but is faith primarily subjective or is it objective? Is it primarily confidence, assurance, or is it in fact the very substance or the means of obtaining access and participation in in that substance? So here's the three versions. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here's another version. Now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And this is the King James Version, and I like the King James Version. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So in the first two translations, the focus is on something inside of us. Assurance, conviction, confidence. But in the KJV, it is something more objective. It is substance. It is evidence. I believe this third translation is closer to the reality. And we may not be used to thinking this way. Uh, I'm saying that faith is substantive. It is itself an evidence. And the, the Greek term here is substance, upostasis. Uh, the, the chief reality is the way it's usually thought. The chief reality behind phenomena. It is the plan, the purpose, the concern. Uh, Not in the sense that it's present only theoretically or conceptually, but in such a way that it is actually present. I'm quoting here from Polybius. In another context, the upostasis is of an unfinished temple or tomb. And the idea is that this makes sense if it is taken to be the total plan of this tomb or this pyramid, the total plan or the basic conception, in accordance with which the concrete phenomena and acts are to be appraised. In astrology, upostasis means the reality of life present in the constellation at the hour of our birth. And since this is a reality which is not yet actualized in appearance but which immutably lies behind phenomena, is the idea. It seems not unlikely that the philosophical meaning and the astrological meaning have fused. In the, in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word is used in Job, in Job 22.20, and there it denotes immovable property, as opposed to movable property, that is, one is the movable property can be destroyed by fire. And upostasis is understood then as an indestructible thing. It is the basis of existence. Judges 6.4 is a reference to daily life, the means by which daily life is sustained, the basis of power. And so in a whole series of instances, whether the, the Greek or the Septuagint, I think the meaning is plain. What is meant is the reality behind phenomena. Faith is this reality, or faith accesses this reality. Um, And so we find the meaning. It's there in the Psalms in several places, the idea that man has no foundation of his own before God. This is Psalms 139, 15 to 16. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed upostasis, my unformed substance. So upostasis is the underlying reality behind something. It's the plan or purpose or that which endures behind things. It only occurs five times in the New Testament, and twice in Paul, and three times in Hebrews. Uh, in 1.3, the Son <clears throat> was stated to be the very image of God's hypostasis, the very image of the substance of God. In 3.14, believers are said to be Christ's associates, if they hold fast the beginning of their hypostasis, their substance or their their faith firm to the end. In the former place, maybe we'd think of it as primarily objective, a substance, a real essence. Uh, And certainly by posing it subjective-objective, I think in in, uh, the latter sense, well, there's certainly this subjective element to it. And in the latter verse, it has that sense of confidence or assurance. But I think it's an assurance or confidence on the basis of the objective reality. And so the objective meaning, faith is the substance of things hoped for, or the faith gives substance or reality to our hopes, is the New International Version. Things which in themselves have no existence, as yet they become real, they become substantial for us by the exercise of faith, is the way Bruce talks about it. Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson says, since faith defines a life based on what is not seen rather than what is seen, it, is, it also becomes a proof in the very lives of the humans who live by it. Here's the evidence. In other words, we don't usually think of faith as an evidence or a proof, but it's the evidence of the reality of the unseen. <clears throat> he says this proof is apocalyptic. It is based on the vision of faith that brings hope that life will be other than what it is in its present circumstance, And we begin to live out the reality of this hope with a kind of dissatisfaction with the way that life is as it is presently. So the substance of faith, unseen as it is, makes itself known as we endure. And this is, of course, the picture in Hebrews. As we endure struggles, insults, persecution, imprisonment, and loss of property. The reality of faith is established as a stronger counter-reality to what causes this persecution and loss. And so Hebrews demonstrates this. You know, it's in the litany of the faithful in chapter 11 that we're about to go through. But remember the conclusion of chapter 11. The pioneer and perfecter of our faith is Jesus Christ, to whom all the faithful are witnesses. And to this point, faith in Hebrews, there's been a lot of faith, but it's primarily an attribute of Jesus, of Jesus' faithfulness in obedience to God. The first time we encountered faith, or pistos, it was Christ in 2.17. In one of the very few admonitions, it says, Consider that Jesus was faithful, and it's the same word here, uh, to the one who appointed him. So that faith throughout Hebrews has this idea of being faithful to God. It's not simply an inward subjective faith, but an outward faithfulness. And Hebrews explains this faithfulness of Jesus in 22. He offers a better sacrifice. He laid down his life. It's better than the Levitical priesthood. His faithfulness in the face of death establishes a counter-reality. His faithfulness, is obedient faithfulness, gains entry into the Holy of Holies. The, The emphasis, then, is on Jesus' faith. It's not our faith. And our faith, our faithfulness, is a participation in his faithfulness. And so in 6.2, in 6.12 rather, we're told to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. But this was a preview of chapter 11 in which, you know, it shifts. He's talked about the primary one we imitate is Christ. 11 and 12 is going to shift that with Christ's faithfulness, our faithfulness then should be the result. And so we're to pay attention. As 12.2 reminds us, uh, only Jesus pioneers and perfects our faith. Our exercise of faith is only possible as we enter the sanctuary through his flesh. We can only be faithful in Christ. Maybe an odd way to think about it if we're thinking of faith as something that is primarily subjective. In 8 1 to 928, the author depicted Jesus as a priest. He saves through two things: purification and perfection. Purification is a cleansing, a removal of something that does not belong. Perfection is a fulfilling, a completion of something that should be. And so Hebrews sees Christ as affecting both of these things simultaneously in and through faith. Christ is made perfect through his obedient faithfulness, through his obedient suffering, and by this he is the cause of perfecting believers. Hebrews 12.2 develops this theme. We proceed by looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And I think this is the background that makes sense of the definition in 11.1 of faith. Faith is a hypostasis. It is a substance of things hoped for. It is a conviction, an evidence of things not seen. And as Martin Luther points out, it may have a slight wordplay uh, between the uh, shrinking back, it's the same root form, in uh, uh Shrinking back and and, uh, hypostasis. And so faith is not shrinking back. It's the courage to move forward rather than retreat in cowardice. And so faith enables us to encounter and appreciate reality and participate in that reality, the reality of God, ultimate reality. And this is a counter, I believe, to a foundationalism, there's only one foundation that has been laid, and that is Christ Jesus. And I think that we have tended to trust in another foundation, and then we've put faith on the top of that, the idea of a pure reason. Augustine interprets faith as a wealth or possession as it relates to hope. He says, when you hope, you do not yet have what you are hoping for, but by believing it, you resemble someone who does possess it, and so faith renders substantial that thing that which you hope for. Faith is the present substantial possession of that which you yet, do not yet have in full. The Syrian bis, Bishop Theodoret, and I'm quoting early church fathers because I think we're, we have to almost go back to the early church to get the full sense of faith that we've lost. He says, faith depicts for us in advance the resurrection of those still lying dead in their tombs and causes the immortality of the dust of our bodies to become evident. And so this makes good sense in that we're told throughout chapter 11 that the faithful who exemplify the hypostasis who died without receiving the promise... But they died in hope largely because of resurrection. It's always resurrection faith. And so the theme of resurrection from death runs through nearly all the characters mentioned in Hebrews 11. We'll just hit it again and again. That they had faith in the face of death. In the reality of their own martyrdom. Nonetheless, they believe. uh, Abraham, Abraham is the prime example. And so uh, resurrection is decisive, I think, throughout Hebrews. Think here, Abel still speaks even though Cain killed him. Enoch never tasted death, but still lives. Abraham and Sarah, even though they are as good as dead, the promise is fulfilled. Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice, Sacrifice because God, he, he's, the writer says, is able to raise someone from the dead. So when we say faith, it's a very particular thing. It's resurrection faith in the face of death. We're told that some women received their dead by resurrection. Others found no resurrection, but they were willing to be tortured in order to obtain an even better resurrection. And so as Hebrews readers, as the listeners, were to look to Jesus to see him, his res life, death, resurrection, he is the substance of faith because he endured the cross, 12:2. He was raised and now has taken a seat at the th- right hand of the throne of God. Cyril of Jerusalem interprets faith through the doctrine of creation uh, in 11:3. That is, what is seen was made from what is not seen. The writer of Hebrews appeals then to creation. And for him, all of life requires faith. It is intrinsic in all good activities, all things that are accomplished in the world, even by those who are strangers perhaps to Christianity in the church, he says, still what they accomplish that is good is through faith. So by faith, farmers are also sustained for the one who does not believe that he shall receive a harvest is not going to endure the work. Rufinus defends Christianity against the charge of phideism. Phideism as a kind of, you know, circular faith. But he acknowledges all reason assumes an element of faith. He says the pagans are wont to object to us that our religion, because it lacks reasons, rests solely on belief. He says, we have shown, therefore, that nothing can possibly be done or remain stable unless it is preceded by belief. Uh, If you're familiar with the postmodern revolution, this is really what they're saying. That worldview, faith, underlies all of our understanding. Uh, It presumes, you know, reason presumes faith. He gives example, Rufinus, of bearing children and teaching. He says, we enter into those activities without knowing for certain their outcome. Faith is necessary to do them well. Aquinas says, faith is the habit of mind by which eternal life is begun in us, making the intellect to assent to things which are not apparent. He uses the example of, uh, you know, Thomas, after the resurrection... What he saw was the humanity. What he believed was the divinity. Christ raised made him realize that here is the divine. Luther sees Hebrews comparing substance, high stasis in 11.1, with the substance of 10.34, that is of material possessions. The latter term usually translated, you know, uh, uh, things or substance or and of course the Hebrews have been persecuted they've lost these things uh, these the substance of everyday life that uh, the material possessions constitute but the Hebrew listeners were willing to have such goods plundered and now maybe Luther says they're tempted to cling to them and so chapter 11 is to remind them of a different kind of possession you have the substance you have a possession that is greater. It is a different kind of possession. The point is to divest them of their affection of temporal things and transfer them to the lasting heavenly things. And so faith is a possession, but it is of the the word of God. It is of the everlasting goods. So Hebrews' litany of the faithful that we're about to undertake, there's the quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2, It's a statement about the coming one, the Messiah, who is going to live by faithfulness. And the culmination in chapter 3, or in chapter 12, 1 to 3, is the picture of uh, those, uh, you know, of the faithfulness of Christ. And then there is the the claim in 11.6, without faith, God cannot rightly be known. Are approached. The only way we can come to know God is through faith. That's point one. Don't get nervous. There's only. I'm concluding now. Okay. (laughs) So, what is the nature of faith? We've already said it's resurrection faith. And once we understand the fullness of faith, I think we can understand that sin entails more than a mere lack of believing. It is concerned with slavery to the fear of death, as he says in 2.14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. Faithlessness and fear, fear of death, are linked where faith allows us to see things rightly, sin is always deceived. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Encourage one another so, as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. What is faithlessness, sin? Well, it is being deceived. What is faithlessness? It is being afraid. It's cowering to slavery, you know, of fear of death. The faithless, by definition, I think, entails lack of obedience. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient, so see that they were not able to enter because of lack of unbelief. Disobedience, unbelief go together. Faith, faithfulness, obedience, courage, uh, truth are all linked. In 4, 2, 1 to 3, 2 to 3, we have the good news preached to us just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit because it was not united. By faith in those who heard, You can re- hear the word, but if you're faithless, if, you don't, if you're not faithful. So faithlessness in the midst of testing is connected with sin, which leaves one subject to fear, subject to deception, subject to the devil, subject to unrest, subject to dying metaphorically in the wilderness. And so the comment that Jesus was without sin, you know, this is in chapter 2, when tested, implies that his own behavior during his time of testing was characterized by faith. Did you ever think of this? That Jesus has faith. You know, this is the thing, Aquinas, uh, he, he says, oh, Jesus can't have faith because he's God. Well, no, he does have faith. It's not that the beatific vision takes away the necessity of faith. 5.7 clarifies at least one of the ways in which Jesus' faith expressed itself. He trusted, he cried out to the one who was able to save him out of the realm of death. And so a key element of Jesus' faith was that God, the belief that God was able to resurrect him. I think Jesus' faith was resurrection faith. In six, one to two, faith in God in the face of death, resurrection, faith, he says, belongs to the most elementary teaching. And of course he's going to conclude this litany of faith with the picture of Abraham, that the one who is the pattern of faith is Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed, going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. Do you know where you're going? You know, I don't know exactly where I'm going. But by faith, I take one step in that direction. I continue to head. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect, this was our discussion in Sunday school today, Daniel's praying for this city, this new Jerusalem. Well, the new Jerusalem, the city whose architect and founder is God, is one that we begin to inhabit in and through our own faithfulness. Therefore there was born even of one man, this is Hebrews 11, still talking about Abraham, as good as dead. And yet from him as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand in the seashore were born. So the fruit of faith, its true substance, is participation in this heavenly city, this resurrection life. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. He faced the reality of death. Uh, And in Isaac, he said, Your descendant shall be called. He considered that God, here is the definition that is throughout 11, that I think it's there in 1 and 2, that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a time. So, faith is by definition resurrection faith in which the source and substance of life is made available now. Let's sing our hymn.